Welcome into Words with Wallace. I'm your host, Nick Wallace. Coming at you, it is Wednesday, May 24th. Uh, man, lots gone down since the last time we spoke, man. There have been seven uh, conference finals games played since the last time we spoke. Uh, almost none of them in the favor of my Boston Celtics. So needless to say, I am not in the highest spirits coming at you with this podcast here. Uh, but that's why they pay me the big bucks, right? I got to come in. I got to talk ball no matter how my team's doing, no matter how I'm feeling. Because uh, I know you guys need it. The dozens of you listening need this NBA content. So that's why I'm here with you today. And I am excited to talk to you about uh, what exactly is going on with the Celtics Heat series. Of course, my Celtics down 3-1 at the time I am recording that. Uh, but before we can get into all that, um, you know, this is going to be a pretty simple podcast. We're just going to kind of go over what's going on uh, with the Western Conference Finals, how that all played out. And we will get to my Celtics a little bit later. Uh, but let's start with what we know, and that's in the Western Conference. We know that the Denver Nuggets just punched their ticket uh, to the first finals appearance in the franchise's history. Congratulations uh, to the Denver Nuggets. They uh, well-deserved and really impressive playoff run that they are going through right now. Um, and let's kind of talk about how that's all gone down, right? Uh, the last time I spoke with you was right after Game 1. Um, since then, the Lakers, uh, of course, were swept by the Nuggets, losing the next three games after that. But let's let's kind of talk about exactly how that all played out. So, um, you know, the Sparknotes version of this series, Game 2, um, this was a big Jamal Murray game. He had two really big games in Games 2 and 3, but I feel like Game 2 was probably the most impressive uh, because he actually went out and he scored 23 point, points in the fourth quarter. Um, he was absolutely cooking. He only had seven points in the game earlier. Or excuse me, he had a little bit. He wasn't exactly playing well earlier in the game. Uh, finished the game with 37 points overall. So he had 14 going into the fourth quarter. Uh, and then just took it to another level with that. Uh, Murray is no stranger to big fourth quarters, as we learned when we were watching this game live. Um, they announced this on the broadcast, and I thought it was pretty nuts, so I wanted to share it. This is the fourth time that Jamal Murray has scored 20 points or more in the fourth quarter of a playoff game. Uh, again, that's four times he's done that. That's the most in NBA history. Um, I actually looked into this stat a little bit to see if it was true, and it was. On the broadcast, I think they mentioned that like MJ and Allen Iverson were the, like, the next closest at two apiece. When I looked it up, I couldn't even find anybody else that had done it even one or more than one time. Um, so really impressive company. I think the other three times he did that were in the bubble, which you know people kind of look down upon. But uh, Murray has certainly been able to beat the uh, the bubble boy allegations, and he's been fit. he was absolutely unbelievable this entire series against the Lakers. So um, that was a really fun game in Game Two. Uh, game Three was probably the worst Jokic game we've seen, maybe in the playoffs, certainly versus in the series versus the Lakers. Um, he's still you know, had a decent stat line overall. But the important thing about his performance when he was really struggling early on is that he was still able to put up 15 points in the fourth quarter when his team needed him the most. And they were yet again able to close out a close game against the Lakers. And then, of course, we had game four just a couple days ago. Um, this one was pretty entertaining because it was it was made obvious pretty early on that the Lakers were not going to go quietly into the night. Uh, they, you know, set the tone pretty early on uh, by how LeBron played in the first quarter. You know, Braun had 21 in the first quarter. Uh, he finished the game with 40 points. He played basically every single second of that game. 
Uh, you can maybe make the argument that was a questionable decision just because he did look absolutely gassed by the time the fourth quarter rolled around and nobody's surprised. But uh, I respect him for it. I think that was dope that he wanted to play the entire game uh, and did not want to be swept. He, he really did leave it all on the court in that situation. And the Nuggets were able to weather yet another like late game surge from the Lakers. Again, all these games were pretty close. And it just feels like they have the, the best composure out of any of the teams remaining in the playoffs. Um, you know, big runs, you know, tough situations on the road really doesn't bother them, which is kind of funny when you think about it because they were pretty bad. I know all the te- the top teams in the re- in the West actually had losing records on the road, which is pretty rare for a team that was like the one seed in their conference. Uh, but yet again, they were not phased by the Lakers' crazy crowd the other night, and they were able to pull out uh, a big win. Um, there were some bad fouls from Jokic late. It seemed like he was pissed off when he picked up his fourth foul, and he just decided to absolutely truck LeBron uh, with the fifth foul, which... I don't know. Maybe that was like a personal thing. Maybe he, he was pissed off at Braun earlier or something, but he like totally dropped like most obvious offensive foul I've seen probably this playoffs, but he finished with five fouls and never were able to foul out Jokic and the Nuggets end up winning the series. So, you know, this series as a whole, it, it kind of reminded me of the Celtics net series in round one of last year's playoffs, because albeit it was a sweep, a sweep is a sweep. It's still really impressive from the Nuggets and it's disappointing for the Lakers. But that being said, every single game was actually really close in the series. Basically, every game was, uh, you know, came down to the wire, was decided by a few baskets or less. Um, so I thought this was, you know, a pretty impressive win for the for the Nuggets, of course. And let's kind of talk about it from the Lakers perspective. We do have to say goodbye to the Los Angeles Lakers. I'm not going to play the music. They made it to the conference finals. I'll have a little bit of respect for them in this situation. Let's just get right into it. So the Lakers series, right? It 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 sucks getting swept. It, it definitely stings. But overall, I mean, I'm pretty impressed from the Lakers series, you know, from the Lakers season as a whole. I think they met, maybe even exceeded expectations of the team. If we're being completely honest, I'd probably give it an eight out of 10 if I had to put a number grade on it. Um, You know, I think it it really, the tone of their season changed again around the trade deadline. Um, You know, Rob Palenka, you know, uh, what is he, is his title GM or president of basketball ops? One of those two, but bottom line, he makes the decisions in in terms of personnel for the Lakers. Uh, and he had basically awoke from his two-year coma uh, right around February, basically after the, the, the Lakers won the bubble title in 2020, uh, up and through the, this year's trade deadline. That dude basically made every wrong decision with the absence of, of moving on from, from LeBron or Anthony Davis that he could. Um, and he he righted a lot of wrongs at the trade deadline. So with my very first podcast, that was actually one of the first things I talked about was the Lakers moves. But since it's been a while, I, I kind of wanted to just, you know, reevaluate what the Lakers did at the trade deadline, if you guys will allow me to do that. Uh, so the trade at the trade deadline, the Lakers acquired the following pieces. They acquired D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley, Jared Vanderbilt, Rui Hachimura, uh, David Reed, and Mo Bamba. And then they uh, sent away the departures for the trade deadline at the Lakers were Russell Westbrook, Kendrick Nunn, Juan Toscano-Anderson, Damian Jones, Thomas Bryant, Patrick Beverly, and a 2027 first-round pick that is top four protected. I think they also sent out and acquired a couple second-round picks, but for the purposes of this exercise, I'm not even going to mention them here. So let's kind of evaluate what that means. Again, I think the core, the guys that actually played for them in the playoffs, they acquired uh, D'Angelo Russell, 
uh, Jared Vanderbilt and Rui Hachimura. They had Mobamba who was injured, and, and they announced he actually was available if needed in Game 4, just for him to not even get minutes, and they gave minutes to Tristan Thompson, which was definitely interesting. Uh, but whatever. So yeah, they, they acquired three real guys as part of their playoff rotation, and they traded away some big names in Russell Westbrook, um, and Patrick Beverly, I, I would argue, is a big name, mainly because of his media presence and whatnot. And, of course, the first-round pick. When I look back at that, you know, some people might maybe expected more because of how much the, the whole energy of the team shifted and how much better they were after the trade deadline. You probably would have thought that the names on paper that they acquired would look a little better. But it's still a really fantastic trade deadline. Like, I think at its core, like, you traded a first-round pick. That was really the only real asset you gave up, a top-four protected first. And you got back three guys that are a part of your playoff rotation. Um, I think it was also the the big thing here was addition by subtraction in the Russell Westbrook situation. I mean, that his tenure in Los Angeles predictably was awful. You know, it didn't really make sense when, when they decided to, to trade KCP and other guys for Westbrook. Uh, and it ultimately blew up and it got really nasty about halfway through the season there. Um, and it just seemed like the team was in much better spirits and they just fit a lot better on paper just with Westbrook off the court. So that's a big part of it. But let's just kind of talk about how these guys that they acquired at the trade deadline fared in the playoffs. Now, uh, Jared Vanderbilt is a guy I'm a big fan of. I've spoken about him on this podcast before. You know, he kind of fell out of the rotation when he was playing in the Nuggets series. He was actually out of the rotation a little bit later on in the Golden State series as well, if I remember correctly. Uh, but I still think despite him not being super playable in those matchups, I think he's going to be a huge asset for them if they're able to. I don't exactly know what his contract situation is, but assuming he's on the team next year, he's going to be a really great regular season asset for them, man. Because the regular season is a totally different beast. It, it becomes a marathon. It's it's not a sprint, right? Um, you know, having a guy that can truly defend one through five. I mean, a lot of people like saying that, but there's really only a handful of guys in the league that can do that, especially at a high level. And I think Jared Vanderbilt is one of them. Um, he did really impress me with, you know, the way, the willingness that they had to put him on Steph Curry, to put him on John Morant, uh, to put him on Luka late in the regular season. I mean, this guy uh, can obviously guard bigs as well with him being around 6'8", 6'9", um, super athletic guy. Uh, I just feel like in the regular season, because you don't have all this time to game plan for teams, it's like, you know, hey, it, it's just nice having a guy. It's like, okay, we have, you know, Portland on Thursday. Let's just toss Vando on Dame and, and see how that goes to at least start the game, right? And then, oh, we have the Nets, you know, next next Wednesday, right? Uh, let's put him on Mikel Bridges, see how he fares there. Um, I just think having a guy like that during the regular season is going to take a lot off the backs of Anthony Davis and LeBron, trying to keep them fresh and, and take away with the energy they need to expel on the defensive end of the court. So even though he wasn't the most useful late in the season, uh, still high on Vando, he's still a great asset. And he even had some moments early on in the Warriors series again, uh, when he defended Steph pretty well in game one. Uh, moving on, man, Rui Hachimura was incredible for them in the playoffs. I was really impressed with what I saw from Rui. I thought... You know, relative to expectations, he was the Laker that I was the most impressed with. Um, he looks like, you know, again, the guy that went ninth in the NBA draft a couple years ago in 2019 for a reason. Uh, you know, he's a big body. He was an elite shooter in the playoffs. I don't know how exactly what his splits were when he was in Washington before the deadline. But 
Uh, I think they got him for, you know, just a couple of second round picks. So that was really the, if, if you had to pick one of the moves that they made at the deadline, that was definitely the best one, in my opinion. You know, his playoff numbers finished at 12 and four, but the shooting splits were outstanding. I mean, he shot 55 percent from the field, 49 percent from three and 88 from the line. And just being a, a big body, being six foot nine out there um, has a lot of value to it. So really impressed with what I saw from Rui. He was their third or fourth option for you know basically the entirety of the Nuggets series uh, and really like what I saw from him. I do want to say he's a free agent, so hopefully they're able to retain him. We'll see how that goes. And then the other part of their playoff rotation for what it was worth was D'Angelo Russell. I mean, this dude blew. I mean, he sucked against the Nuggets. I mean, he was really, really bad. Uh, the shots were just not falling for him whatsoever against the Nuggets. And, you know, that's kind of the thing with D'Lo. He plays his, you know, cool, calm demeanor, his, the relaxed pace that he plays at looks super smooth and, and cool when they're winning and when he's playing well and when he's hitting shots. And when it, and when he's not, it's like, man, get this guy off the court. He looks unplayable. And that's kind of what he ended up being against the Nuggets. But, you know, let's not get too hung up on that, right? You're playing against a much better Nuggets team. It wasn't the matchup for him, but he did have some moments earlier on in the series against Memphis and against Golden State where he hit some big shots. I mean, if you want to compare him to Westbrook, he's still a much better fit to what the Lakers want to do. He's still normally a good shooter at the very least, especially in the spot-up situation. Um, and he's just, again, he's a much better fit for that team. And he's a really good compliment with Dennis Schroeder, right? Like, it wasn't the end. Like, I wouldn't say, oh, D'Angelo Russell's the reason they didn't, they didn't beat the Nuggets. It wasn't like that. Especially when you have a guy like Schroeder who actually took on the challenge of guarding Jamal Murray to the best of his abilities. I mean, Murray still did what he had to do. Uh, but they have guys, uh, they had a good complement of, of guards there with D'Lo and Schroeder. Um, let's move on to the rest of the team. Obviously, I, again, I think it's a win for, you know, if you're looking at the traded line move for the Lakers, and that's what sparked this whole run. And let's talk about the big dogs in the Lakers. Let's, let's start with Anthony Davis. Um, I think he was the MVP of this Lakers team throughout the year and into the playoffs as well. Um, I think he's the biggest individual reason uh, why they were able to even beat Golden State, which I think is still really impressive. And I, I again, I probably should have mentioned that earlier. That's a, another reason the series is a win, like the season's a win. I did not expect them to beat Golden State, whatever. Let me just say that again. Like, they beat the defending champs, and they beat a healthy version of the defending champs. They didn't have any notable injuries. Obviously, the team was a little bit discombobulated with the lack of cohesion they had with, you know, Wiggins being out. And, um, you know, they still were getting inconsistent minutes from, uh, Jonathan Kaminga and some of their other young guys. Poole was a nightmare. I get all that, but they're still the defending champs. They still had Steph Curry playing at a high level. They were able to win that series. And a big reason is because Anthony Davis was unbelievable on the defensive end of the court every single night. Even when he sucked on offense, even when he looked disengaged on offense, he was able to protect the rim, unlike really anybody else in the, in the league can when he's at his best. Um, and he was, you know, when he was healthy during the season, like he had that stretch early in the season where he was the most dominant player uh, in the league, I want to say during like, what was it? Probably around like November or December, he was really awesome. Then he got hurt again and he did the whole Anthony Davis thing. But when he's hitting his ceiling, he is a top 10 guy in the league. And there's not many, obviously that's a short list, right? So um, I really liked what I saw from Anthony Davis. He was good on offense probably 60% of the time throughout the playoffs. He was pretty pretty much on an every other game schedule when he'd show up. But I still liked what I saw from Davis as a, as a whole. And this was definitely a win of a season for him. Uh, we got to talk Bron. Let's let's talk about LeBron, right? Uh, unbelievable season for LeBron, especially when you consider uh, you know his foot inj injury, the the plantar fasciitis. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, pretty significant foot injury for the average person. Uh, and when you're LeBron, I guess it just ends up being like a, a couple month injury there. But um, you know he obviously looked a little banged up. He looked tired and all that stuff. And that probably comes back to the foot injury that even I forget about. But 
I just can't believe when I watch LeBron, like, you know, you would think when with an aging player and an aging player of his caliber, you think he'd be relying more on jump shots and, and easy ones and maybe post-ups here and there. It's like, nah, man, he still gets to the rim easier than basically anybody else in the league. Like, certainly for the people that were left in the playoffs, he was the best at getting to the basket. It wasn't even close. I guess if you were to open up to the entire league, you'd probably have to put, like, Giannis and Ja on that list, maybe. But beyond that, I think LeBron's, like, the next best guy at just putting his head down and getting to the basket at will. Uh, and it really comes, for him, seems like it comes down to more of, like, an energy thing than it, and, you know, a physical toll thing than it does, like, his ability to just get there. Like, at age 38, that's just unheard of, and I have to give him all the credit in the world for that. Um, but, you know, like LeBron does, he he seems to make the headlines uh, for better or for worse almost all the time. And I don't mean for worse, but just, you know, for you know drama. Usually he likes to kind of create his own drama just so he stays atop of, of the news storylines. And I think that's exactly what happened after Game 4 when he basically alluded to, you know, the idea that he was considering retiring at the very least. I'm not going to go through the exact quote, but I think we've all seen it by now that he's at least thinking about retiring. I'll give you 30 seconds on it. It's not going to happen. Uh, he wants another ring, first and foremost. He, I, I should say he wants to play with his son, first and foremost, who is going to USC next year. He'll likely be a one and done, I guess, to increase his chances of being able to play with his dad. So, uh, and, and he also, of course, wants a fifth title. That would certainly help his legacy quite a bit. Uh, he's not going anywhere, man. It's just a mix of, you know, him being a little frustrated after how the season ends. It always sucks ending in a sweep. And it's better to have the conversation be about, hey, is LeBron coming back? Uh, than it is like, hey, LeBron just got swept. Like, you know, I think he just wants to control the narrative. And he, he likes putting pressure on ownership he's done that every step of the way he, you know did it in cleveland I, i'm sure he did it in miami as well he did it in cleveland the second time like he just always likes to let ownership know like hey if things aren't great like i could bounce and so i think that's a matter of what it was just trying to give some notice to the lakers although i don't exactly know what their moves would be um you know just wanted to you know touch on that real quick you know was this the lakers best chance to win a title with their core with, you know, the core as currently constructed without making some crazy splash move. I mean, probably, like, I've I've been pretty consistent in saying I felt like this was the Celtics' best chance, and um, I think you could say the same thing about the Lakers. It was pretty open. Like, I don't think that, you know, I think despite it, all the games being close, I think Denver was kind of on another level. But, you know, crazy shit happens, right? I mean, they're a Jokic sprained ankle away from, you know, getting to the finals, and it wouldn't shock me at all if they handled Miami or handled Boston with what we're seeing from that series. Um, you know, because we'll talk about that later, but I do think the Lakers would have, a, you know, as good of a chance as any, I just think Denver is kind of on another level uh, floating above the rest of the competition right now. Um, you know, if I wanted to be optimistic about the Lakers season next year, you could argue like, Hey, I mean, Braun you know, is a freak, right? He could actually be better next year with an extra year of rest after the foot injury. Um, but then, you know, the counter side of that argument is like, hey, are you even going to get another, you know, eight plus weeks of, of good health from LeBron at age 39 at that point? And then Anthony Davis um, through, again, three round, at least three rounds of playoffs where they're both healthy next year. I don't know. That probably seems like a bad bet to make. 
Um, so it is tough. I don't know exactly, like, I, I don't want to get into exactly what moves they could make. I'm not sure there are many obvious moves besides trying to keep Austin Reeves, who was really good for them. I should mention Austin Reeves. He was awesome, and he was the third best player for the Lakers uh, for really most of the season, but, you know, that was solidified in the playoffs, and uh, I believe he's up for an extension, so he should be commanding a, a you know, significant amount of money on the free agent market if the Lakers don't somehow re-sign him, but I think that they will. Um, he was really awesome for them as well. I just, he was good for them most of the year. So I felt like I was a little bit more impressed with what I saw from Rui just looking at the playoffs, but overall solid season for the Lakers. They beat the defending champs. They made it to the Western conference finals. Um, and they did so in a pretty dramatic way, right? They turned it around from a team that was literally on the outside, looking into even the play in race to making it to the Western conference finals. You can't be too upset with that. So congratulations to the Lakers on a successful season. And uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from them in the off season. Now let's talk about the Nuggets, right? As I mentioned before, the Nuggets just punched their ticket to the finals for the first time in the franchise history. Um, and let's kind of talk about how they got there. Now, just, you know, being transparent with the schedule of this podcast, you know, the finals start a week from tomorrow. They start on Thursday, June 1st, no matter how the East uh, Conference Finals plays out. So I will have another podcast before the start of the finals for sure, where we can take a deeper look at the Nuggets and we can do like a finals preview and all that good stuff. Uh, but I do want to touch upon the Nuggets quickly. Um, is Jokic the best player in the world? Yeah, yeah, probably, right? Um, it was interesting. I still, after the Bucks got knocked out, I was still kind of like, yeah, I still think Giannis will end up being the best player in the world. But it's just so hard to avoid the recency bias and, you know, what have you done for me lately, right? Uh, and if Jokic, you know, puts together the title run that it looks like he's going to do, I think it's going to be pretty hard to debate that uh, with how impressive he's been during this postseason run. Um, but one thing I wanted to touch upon real quick, and it just kind of pisses me off, and I should have done this on the at least in the last podcast, maybe the podcast before. Once the Sixers got bounced from the playoffs, I saw so much shit uh, that Joel Embiid was taking, like, oh, is this your MVP? Is this this? Is that? And I know that that just kind of comes with the territory. People are going to say stupid shit to piss off other fan bases and whatever. But I really hate that. It's like, how many times do we need to explain to people that it is a regular season award? And not only that, like, the award is the most valuable player during the regular season. It's most valuable. It's not who is the best player in the world. If the argument and the question was, and the award was, who is the best player in the world, that is a separate topic altogether. I would not ever sign off on Joel Embiid being the best player in the world unless he makes some massive leap next season. I do not think he's on a short list, but I don't think he's in the top two guys of that conversation. Jokic you can put in that conversation. Giannis you can put in that conversation, in, in my opinion anyway. Embiid is, is not. And that's okay, but that doesn't mean he's not the MVP. It doesn't mean he didn't lead the league in scoring. It doesn't mean he didn't have an impressive an incredibly impressive season where he crushed every single primetime performance and played through the end of the season, right? If I was making the argument for Embiid, I'd say, hey, the Nuggets kind of mailed it in the last month of the season because they didn't need to work that hard, right? They had the one seed basically locked up for a while. Nobody was really threatening them as far as Memphis or Sacramento for making a run for that seed. And they deserve to be able to mail it in, right? Um, and Bede went hard through the very last week of the season when he dropped 50 on the Celtics. Like, he's a really impressive player. He does, he worked for years to get that MVP. It's kind of hard to not feel good about the guy finally getting it when he came up in, in second place, um, you know, the last two seasons, especially. Uh, you know, obviously he was second to Jokic in those MVP contests. Um, so I just hated seeing it. I hated seeing it. It's a regular season award. It doesn't matter how disappointing he was in the playoffs. And for the record, Embiid lost to a worse team. He still impressed me from what I saw. But 
of course, he, he's not as good as Jokic. He's not having as good of a postseason run as Jokic. Jokic is probably going to have a title when this is all said and done, and it's going to make it a no contest. And it just sucks that whenever people talk about Jokic that they feel the need to bring up Embiid and vice versa because they've been compared as they play the same position in these MVP races the past couple of years have been close. And I know I'm bitching about it when I literally am doing the same thing right now, but at least I'm doing it in, in defense of Joel Embiid. I'm not tearing anybody down just because I'm building up Jokic. And I can't believe I'm defending Embiid for this long. So maybe I should end this rant, but that's my, that's my two cents on, on that. It's an, it's a regular season award. Embiid was deserving of that award and, and the way his postseason ended does not change that. Uh, let's move on back to the Nuggets. Sorry for that tangent. Um, back to, to Jokic and, and his wingman, right? Jamal Murray. Cause Jamal Murray was insane. Uh, he led the Nuggets in scoring that series. He averaged 30 something points a game and man, I just love this guy more and more. I love his game so much. Again, he's the perfect compliment to Jokic. And I think that the two man game that those guys have is easily the best two man game in the modern NBA. And obviously they have a lot of work to do in this regard. I think that they have a chance at reaching like one of you know that that upper that s tier of two-man games in the history of the game if they obviously assuming that they win a title this year and assuming that they have continued success over the next several years but the pieces are there because they actually complement each other better than any two stars that are just happen to be on the same team like they complement each other far better than tatum and brown than Kawhi and paul george then even you know maybe maybe durant and booker will get to that point they haven't played together very long but when when Murray is really cooking, and then you know Jokic is almost like a secondary option that just gets to handle the ball, and Murray gets to do a lot of off ball stuff, and then like their dribble handoff action is literally the most unstoppable thing in the NBA right now. Like Jokic is so damn big, and the defense has to pay so much attention to him anyway that when Murray just comes off, that they're just immediately creating like three feet of separation, and I don't know how you stop that unless you totally sell out and give Jokic a wide open lane to the hoop. I don't understand it. Don't ask me how to stop it, but uh, it's really fun to watch. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. has been exactly what you want in a third option. He's basically like, you know, a spot up for them, a six foot 10 spot up who obviously gives you more defensively than most people uh, just because of his size and, and what he can do on the boards alone. Um, it is kind of funny that I really don't feel like he has an X or A button on his controller. Uh, that's, that's the pass button for uh, those folks at home that are not, uh, 2K connoisseurs like myself. MPJ, I feel like he never passed the ball still. Like when he gets that thing, he gets that thing to put it up, um, which hasn't necessarily hurt the Nuggets yet. I'm, I'm sure he's better about sharing the ball more so than he's been in the past. But uh, it is funny. I'm just like, oh, I should really start a tally of how many times the guy just passes the ball in this game. Because when he gets it, uh, that thing's going up because he's 6'10", and his jump shot is almost impossible to contest, and he's a really good shooter in movement as well. Uh, you know, just in general, to put a ball on it, the Nuggets have been the best team through three rounds and it's not close. Um, they should be significant favorites heading into the finals. Really, again, regardless of how this Eastern Conference finals shakes out, especially when you take into the effect that they've already got a couple days rest and then the Celtics are able to steal one or two more games. That's just even more rest uh, that the Nuggets will have because, again, the finals is starting on June 1st, a week from tomorrow, either way. So really impressed with what I've seen from the Nuggets and we will talk more about them on the next podcast. All right, guess we have to do it. We have to talk about the Celtics and the Heat, right? Uh, before I really give my analysis on it, let's just give everybody a quick synopsis on the first four games of the series, how we've got to this point. Again, Miami's up 3-1. Let's start with game one. This one was tough for me. I was actually uh, en route to a little boys trip in Florida. The game was exactly a week ago. It was last Wednesday. 
Uh, unfortunately, I flew Frontier. Uh, naturally, no, not even like, oh, the, there's Wi-Fi, but you have to pay for it. Nope, there was just no Wi-Fi whatsoever. Uh, so, you know, I, flight was delayed a little bit, so I got to the point where literally I watched the halftime buzzer expire, and then it was takeoff. So I had to shut off the, put it on airplane mode, didn't get to see the rest of the game, uh, and of course had to catch up on it after the fact. But I was feeling great before stuff cut out, right? Smart was diming. He threw like, I think he had nine assists in the first half. Virtually all of them, uh, you know, were one-handed passes, uh, which was pretty funny. I think he he finished out that the half with a crazy uh, one-handed lob to Rob Williams that was just a beautiful pass. And I was feeling good. I think the Celtics were up like eight or nine at the half, and they were playing good ball. Uh, and of course, I land, touchdown, immediately get the notification they lost by like, what is it, nine or ten points. And I was like, what the hell happened? Um, so, of course, what I, I later found out and what I later watched back is that the Celtics completely fell apart in the third quarter. I think they gave up like nearly 40 points, maybe even more than 40 points in the third quarter. Um, and Jimmy Butler took over the game late, and they were able to steal game one. So that's something Miami has done in literally every single series so far. They did it against New York. They did it against the Bucks, And they did it to us on our home court uh, against the Celtics. Game two, uh, this was one I was able to, of course, lock in for. And, uh, yeah, you know, this one is, you know, I think, I think my big thoughts on it is that, you know, uh, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum should be thanking Grant Williams for really taking on all the headlines. Uh, it was a really good game back and forth. It was basically a, it was truly a game of runs. It felt like every single, you know, every single moment of the game, a team was in a, in the midst of like a 12 to two run or something of that nature. And late in the game, you know, Grant Williams, I think he hit a three or something like that. He starts talking shit to Jimmy Butler. And I, what I will say is like, look, Grant played well. He played, he actually had a really solid game and he actually had a really solid game in uh, game four as well. And he's been pretty good throughout the series, but when that in that moment, it sucked. It sucked for us. I was watching the game with Connor and Brogan, and the second he started talking shit to Jimmy Butler, we were like, no, like, don't. Like, what are you doing? Like, get this guy out of the game. We do not need that. You know, Jimmy's our dad. Like, Jimmy owns us. Like, we know, like, we have, we will have, like, we as Celtics fans, for the most part, will admit to having fear of Jimmy Butler. He's been far and away the best player in this series, and we're not even surprised to say that at this point. So uh, we will at least say that, like, Hey, I think Grant took a little bit too much heat for uh, poking the bear and all that, given that he actually was playing well and he, he stood up to Jimmy, whatever. He didn't have to do that, and it sucked. And it did make the game, the rest of the game feel like it was his fault because Jimmy obviously, you know, took offense to that. He, he took it personally, to quote MJ, and he, you know, scored three, four, five buckets on Grant Williams down the stretch that ended up icing the game. But it distracted everybody from the fact that uh, Jalen and Jason had a pretty shitty fourth quarter uh, where I think they only chipped in like maybe five points each, but it, it wasn't impressive. I think Jalen missed a bunch of shots along the way too. Uh, was not a great finish uh, to the end of, of that game in game two. And Miami was able to steal another one in Boston. And so now we're leading up to game three where things are looking bleak. I'm sure the numbers of, of teams that are down 0-2 and lost both of those games at home, I'm sure the numbers for them to come back and win the series are terrible. Uh, I didn't bother looking into that before game three. But game three starts, and it was just an ass-whooping from start to finish. I mean, that's really what it comes came down to, right? Like, 
Um, you know, the, the Heat punched them in the mouth. The Celtics, you know, kind of took the punch in the second quarter, right? I think they were only down, like, they cut it down to, like, 12 at the half, I want to say. And then the reports and the broadcast were like, no, the, the vibes in the Celtics locker room were actually very positive. And Marcus Smart came out and had a smile on his face. And I was like, okay, like, all right, well, let's let's see it. All right, let's see it. And sure enough, like, they hit, like, the first, you know, maybe first two shots the second half. And then it was just... It was just an absolute avalanche, right? Like, the Heat totally kicked their ass. It was completely embarrassing. The the, the third quarter was just another disaster. Uh, and we had the main red claws in the game by the start of the fourth quarter. If you squinted your eyes, it looked like the 86 Celtics with how many white dudes we had running around the court in the fourth quarter of that game. Uh, and it was over. And it was the most embarrassing Celtics loss in recent memory. And we'll leave it at that. I don't even know what else there is to say. Now we're down 3-0. And obviously no other team in NBA history has ever come back from that. And so, yeah, I'm just sitting there hoping, like, you know, we still got to watch. We still got to see it through um, and, and see how this happens. So let's talk about Game 4. And overall, you know, Game 4 was solid, right? The Celtics were able to find the win. Um, there was life. I think that the big difference from the previous games is that Tatum was amazing in this one. I, I'm you know, not to say he was bad in all the other games. I think he actually had a pretty solid game uh, in, what was it, Game 2? I want to say he was pretty, he was pretty good earlier in the series basically everybody was bad in game three but really good tatum game in game four and the other difference is that the rest of the guys as a whole the three-point shooting was up big time right the threes were finally falling i think it was the first game of the series that we finally shot outshot miami from three and shout out to grant shout out to al horford and shout out to Derek white because they uh, all chipped in big time mainly from contributions beyond the three-point line uh, and I think what really opened it up was in the third quarter, right? Because this one didn't end up being particularly close. It ended up, you know, being like 15 points and, um, you know, basically stayed that way for most of the fourth quarter, right? Uh, but what really opened it up for the Celtics was, you know, they started to get a lot of stops. It, it seemed like Miami just got really sloppy with the ball in the third quarter, like a lot of on Miami-like turnovers that just led to some easy transition looks for the Celtics. And I, that was huge for them, right? I just feel like in general that the half-court offense for the Celtics has been super stagnant, like this entire series. Um, and even in game four, I felt like, you know, when we did get in the half-court set, it just seemed like there were a lot of guys standing around. And obviously, you know, again, we were the best defensive team in the league last year, and it wasn't even close. So it's refreshing to see us create some turnovers um, and actually get out and transition, create some easy ones. And that's what ultimately ended up opening up the game for the Celtics. Uh, Lowry was absolutely trash in that last game. He was horrible. Um, and yeah, that, that was kind of my thoughts on game four. So where does that leave us now, right? Obviously, heater up 3-1. Uh, wouldn't say my spirits are high, but, you know, it was nice that we didn't get swept. We raised the banner, didn't get swept by an eight seed in the Eastern Conference Final. Uh, that, that would be big. Uh, but what a weird time it is to talk about this, right? What I'm not going to do is I'm not going to immediately dive into, like, the Celtics funeral stuff that I've seen some people do. I mean, most no one's really doing it now, but a lot of people after Game 3 were already going into, okay, coach needs to be fired. Do they pay Jalen? Do they do this? Do they do that? I'm not going to do that. We have a long offseason ahead where I'm sure I will talk about – I'll have RJ back on. I'll get get some friends on to talk about the Cs, and we can discuss how they should handle the offseason once it gets to that point. So I just wanted to nip that in the butt right, right away. But – Let's give let's give my thoughts on the series first. Like, obviously, I've been pretty hard on on Joey Mans on Coach Joe Mazzulla of the Celtics. Basically, this you know since I had a podcast, I've been I've been pretty critical of him. But you know, we look like a worse team than Miami, right? Like, I know we're not, but we look like a worse team, not just a worse coach team. So this is on our guys too. This is on our players. 
Uh, and overall, the, the first guy that comes to mind is Jalen Brown, right? Jalen Brown has been really, really frustrating to watch this series. Um, the intensity, it, it's it's just not there. Uh, it seems like more of a mental thing because, I mean, obviously I know that they showed some play where I think it was in game one where he kind of got his elbow twisted by Bam and, and, and kind of a weird play there. And, and people are suggesting he's playing hurt and whatever, but like, I don't know, does an elbow injury make you look entirely disinterested on both ends of the court for the majority of the series? Like, I don't, I don't know. Um, I'm not ready to uh, crumple up his max contract because he had four tough games. Again, we can get to that in future episodes. And um, right now, if I had to guess, I would be leaning towards still giving him that contract because I felt very strongly he should get that just a couple weeks ago. But we need him to be better, right? Like we have, I said it before, I was like, we have a 1A and we have a 1B. It certainly does not look like that because, you know, Tatum's at least had moments. He had a really solid game four, like I was saying, uh, where he looked like the best player on the court. There have really been no moments in games where Jalen looks anything other than just a, an uber-athletic wing that is, you know, not afraid to, to really take some questionable shots, right? Uh, so we need more from Jalen Brown. Um, obviously I mentioned this before. It's not surprising at this point. It's just what, what you come to expect when you play the heat. Uh, you know, basically in, in three out of the four games, Jimmy Butler has been far and away the best player of the series. Um, and that's, I wouldn't really expect that to change at this point. Right. I would just kind of hope that we would, uh, at least have a little duel between, you know, Butler and Tatum, uh, where you know, Tatum can at least hang with him a little bit. And then we can get some more contribution from the rest of our team where we should be able to make up for that deficit. But Jimmy's a dog, man. Gotta always, you know, tip my cap to Jimmy. Um, you know, the, the frustrating thing for the Celtics is, is if you're looking at the series as a whole and you're looking at, you know, the, the games that they could have won or, or what they could have done differently, it comes down to games one and two, right? You know, game three was a total ass whooping. You know, let's just kind of punt on that. Uh, obviously, the Celtics were able to win game four in a convincing manner. But, you know, just like last series, right, the inability to win the close games where they were up throughout uh, and Miami is a battle-tested team, and Miami is a team that executes. They execute everything they do, right? Um, they need to be able to win those close games. And I think that if the Celtics ultimately end up dropping the series, I think it's going to come down to those games one and two, right? Um, just like Philly. And I say that just like Philly and just like last round because obviously, like, what was it, game one against Philly where Harden hit that big shot uh, to end it. You know, that was the Harden game in general. And then game four uh, where Jalen doubled, Harden was open in the corner. I want to say that was game four. Maybe it was game five. I could be wrong. Whatever. Those two close games were, were ones that really haunted the Celtics, right? That was the reason they had to go all the way to game seven. Now, they were ultimately able to win that series because they are the better team, but they still dropped, like, the two closest games of that series, too. So it's important to remember, despite the fact that I guess during the regular season, the Celtics were pretty good in, in clutch situations. It didn't necessarily feel like that when I was watching my team, but in the playoffs, it just seems like if the game comes down to the wire, I don't have the faith in my guys to be able to win those games. And I think games one and two are obviously really going to haunt them, especially when you consider that those games are at home. You know, next thing I got to talk about um, is Eric Spolstra, right? The Heat <laughs> look unbelievable. Um, you know, he's obviously, like, they're an eight seed. I, I don't even... I don't even, I try not to think about the fact that they're an eight seed because it's like they're playing in the conference finals. They now have a commanding lead in the conference finals. Like, let's just, let's just crumple up whatever that says, whatever their regular season record says at this point. Um, but it is important to remember what Eric Spolster is doing. Um, he's making a group of, un, you know, a, a prim not primarily, but with several undrafted players literally look like the, the 2013 Spurs, the way they were moving the ball, especially in game three. Like, they're just getting better shots than us every virtually every single time, right? Like, 
you know, the Celtics have better players, right? But they're taking worse shots. It, it really is that simple. Like, you know, the Heat are doing everything they can to move without the ball. They're doing everything they can to hunt matchups. They're constantly trying to get Jimmy on the weakest link. Unfortunately for Derek White in this series, a guy who was second team all defense, that's been him for the matchup with Jimmy. Jimmy seems to thrive with with smaller defenders on him, and he just absolutely you know you know muscles around White whenever he gets that switch on him. Um, so I think that that's pretty interesting. And again, you just never see the you know you never see the a heat possession where somebody just dribbles up the court and jacks up a shot. You never see a heat possession where there's four guys standing around. Um, it's really unbelievable, and the way that Spolster is able to maximize this group again in the with the absence of Harrow, like right, like Gabe Vincent looks unbelievable. Gabe Vincent looks like literally looks like Jamal Crawford for that team. Like the shots that he takes, that guy has absolutely zero fear. Uh, I wonder if it, it's like. I'm not saying this because I'm a hater or whatever. Like I, I definitely don't like Tyler Harrow. He's he's not he's not my type of guy. Uh, but I do think it's interesting. Like, would they even be better if they had Harrow? Like, how can they even be better than than what what they are putting out in the court right now? Because Vincent seems to have stepped into the Harrow role in a masterful way. Um, and they're really lucky too because they've had a couple games where Lowry's just looked like garbage. Uh, and it's a really great compliment that they're able to bring a guy like Lowry off the bench, just you know, be a pest, be a disruptor, you know, take a couple charges, piss everybody on the other team off, and you know, go back to sulking around on the bench looking massive and fat as hell. Uh, anyways, yeah, Vincent's a dog. Like again, it just comes back to the fact that Spolstra has a way of maximizing this roster, and they look like a better team even though they're not because they are consistently getting better shots um just to, again kind of switch the tables here uh give, giving you I know, I know i'm rambling a little bit here as, as most of my podcasts are in this format but i do want to give my thoughts you know my next thing on the agenda here is my thoughts on what this means for missoula right i don't want to get too far into it but i think it's interesting to point out that like literally every single game from him here on out he's coaching for his job right like if the Celtics had ended up getting getting swept they basically would have had a reason to not bring him back. Like it would have been a pretty, I think it would have been pretty obvious that they probably wouldn't have bring, brought him back, at least in the head coaching role. Um, however, they were able to win game four and that makes it look a lot better. And if they're able to win game five, that's going to, or excuse me, if, yeah, if they're able to win game five, that's going to help, you know, their chance a little bit more if he gets to six, seven, et cetera. Like, you know, people are going to, in general, in the larger sense, they're going to forget that the Celtics went down 3-0. What they will remember is, you know, Heat 1-5, and five, Heat 1-6, and six, Heat 1-7, etc. Hopefully not. Uh, but that's what they're going to remember, right? It just remembers what the final score says. And um, if they're able to at least make it a competitive series against this seed, it still would stink to lose to an eight seed. But as we know, Miami's no ordinary eight seed. Miami did already knock out the best team in basketball. They did already advance to the Eastern Conference Finals. So it is interesting, right? If you're rooting for Coach Maz, I don't know if many people are at this point. You're definitely hoping that the Celtics can, you know, obviously drag this out as long as possible to increase the chances that he comes back. And if you're out on the Celtics and you think the coach is the reason and you're, you know, one of those Boston fans, but really you're a hater and you just want to see it over, then you better hope they lose game five. Because if they lose game five, then uh, losing in five through an eight seed might still be enough to get Joey Maz fired. But I just think it's interesting to point out and something to keep in mind when you watch these games is that, you know, I, I'd imagine if there's any anything up uh, Joe Mazzullo's sleeve that he'll let it fly because he probably knows the, the stakes of this. And it does suck for a team that, you know, can win a couple playoff series and, and still have it come down to this. Uh, but, you know, he has a team with championship aspirations. That's the team he inherited. So it's interesting to see. My thoughts on it are all I'll say right now is no matter how this ends for Joe Mazzullo this season, uh, I do want him to be back on the Celtics staff 
next season. I don't know if that's how it works. I don't know if there's any, ever really any cases of a coach being promoted to head coach and then being demoted to an assistant and then sticking around. I don't know what the history of that is. Uh, I do think it would be a pretty reasonable situation for the Celtics to do that because of the situation in which Joe Mazzulla got hired pretty suddenly. He's only 34 years old. Like, I think this guy could have a bright future in basketball. Like, right, there's got to be some things that Brad Stevens and the coaching staff saw in him to at least give him the keys to this team that could win a championship, right? So I don't want to see him just get fired. That's what I'll say about Joey Mass. I want him to be on back on the, the Celtics coaching staff in some capacity next year. Whether it's a head coach or an assistant, that'll be determined. I'll give my thoughts on that uh, at the end of this Celtics season. So how can the Celtics win this, right? How are they going to be able, if, if there's any chance at all, how are they going to be able to overcome a 3-0 deficit, which is now a 3-1 deficit, and end up winning this out? Here are my Celtics keys to success, right? I think it, it starts with stops, right? It starts with getting stops on defense, just like game game four. In general, it... it you know, our Celtics, our half-court offense have never really looks, hasn't looked great in a very long time unless somebody's blindingly hot um, or everybody is just knocking down threes. So, aka, either Tatum's very hot or the whole team is just shooting threes really well. Uh, otherwise, it just seems like our sets, our motion of our offense as a whole is pretty stagnant, pretty boring. Um, so the more that we can get stops means the more that we will get out in transition in the less half-court offense we will need to execute, especially against Miami that's been you know the best defense in the league basically all year. Uh, and especially when we have two incredible wing finishers in Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Um, I think at least one of the next three games is going to be close. There's no way the Celtics just, even if they somehow come back and win, they're not going to just blow out the heat three times in a row. So yeah, these, you know, at least one of these games is going to be really close. So they're going to need to get over whatever's hanging over their head about being able to win these close playoff games. Um, I think that, you know, a way that they can win these close games is if it does get down to the wire, I would like to see them make somebody else beat us. Like again, Gabe Vincent's been a dog all series. Duncan Robinson has had a resurgence. Uh, Bam has been really good on the offensive end. But really, nobody on that team genuinely scares me besides Jimmy Butler. So if it does get, like, I'm not saying they have to Jimmy double Jimmy Butler the entire game. But if it gets down to a late game situation, an end of shot clock situation, uh, you know, tied up at the end of the game situation with the, with the, you know, the clock winding down. I would like them to throw a double at Jimmy Butler and make one of these undrafted guys step up. And I will sleep better at night than rather than knowing that Jimmy got a switch onto Derek white for the fifth possession in a row to give him his, you know, 18th point of the fourth quarter and the heat go on to win. That's what I do not want to see. Uh, another way that we can win these close games is like, we need to find a way to always have Tatum and Brown involved in the offense. We cannot afford to have those guys kind of go out to lunch, right? And I think that these guys are really good, right? Like, the, it's no secret, you know, Tatum was first team all NBA and, and somebody on, you know, my MV, fictional MVP ballot, right? And, and Brown was second team all NBA for a reason, right? These guys are incredible. But, you know, that last level of greatness in the NBA is being able to produce night overnight, right? Every single night. And that's a really short list, right? There's really only like, you know, five to 10 guys that are consistently doing that. And I wouldn't put Tatum or Brown on that list because they don't they do not do it every night. We've seen, if you've watched this team, you know that they, they tend to fade in and out of games and, you know, game to game, they're, they're pretty up and down. So we just cannot ha afford to have them, you know, just be totally out to launch. Like even in last game where we were playing pretty well, like it looked like for a point in the game, like, Brown was totally out of it. Like, he just did not seem engaged whatsoever. He was taking poor shots. Like, 
And the way that I would like to see them, you know, counter that is like, we need to be able to scheme up some easy ones. And and whether it's, you know, getting them onto a bad matchup, whether it's having them come off a couple screens and just, you know, take a mid-range jump shot, whatever that looks like, just keep them involved. And I, you know, maybe they're not wired this way. And I'm sure if you ask them, they'd say all the right things that they're going to be engaged no matter what. And they're engaged even if their team is getting stops. But shooting the ball and, and getting a look on offense is the number one way to make sure somebody's engaged in the flow of a game. And I think that, you know, God forbid, if, if Tatum gets cold, we're, we're probably screwed either way. But I think that's a way that we can get Jalen involved more. So we just need to be able to scheme him easy touches down the stretch in these court in these close games. Um, and finally, the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, I, I don't think Missoula will have a problem with this, but you know, we have eight guys. We have eight guys that you can play. You, we know what they are. I think Grant is one of those eight guys. He's been really good in this series. He's been knocking down shots at a high level. He's played solid defense, even even though he, he wasn't able to stop Jimmy Butler. Not many people can. Um, and that's it. I want no more and I want no less. I think all eight of those guys should play the rest of the way. Uh, and we'll have and we'll have a chance at it. We'll have a shot in it. So uh, what what is the chance? What are the chances that the Celtics pull this off? Um, again, this has never been done before, but at least we're looking at a three one deficit. We're not looking at a three zero deficit. Um, if you want to know what the odds on that, what I'd give it honestly, I'd, I'd tell you to flip a coin uh, three times in a row, and uh, that's probably the odds. The odds that they land on heads or tails three times in a row. Um, I'll you know I'll do it for you guys. I, I looked it up. The odds are of that happening are about twelve point five percent. That's probably the odds I would give the Celtics. I'll actually round up. I will round up to 13%. That is, that is a chance I give the Celtics of winning this series. Uh, give them a little hometown, you know, discount. And that's where I'll leave it, man. I'm, you know, obviously if it if, if they're able to win the next game, I'd, I'd probably boost that up to 50% because I'm, I'm going to get sucked in. I'm going to go back believing on this team. I will say, obviously, you know, the good thing about it is they did the work in the regular season, right? They're playing against a goddamn eight seed. So we're going to have the home court advantage in game five. That should give them a boost, even though we've been worse at home than we've been on the road. So that's something to be aware of. But I do think the Celtics, they're not out of it, right? If you were to create a scenario in which a team did come back from 3-0, you would probably want it to be like this, right? You'd want it to be a team that has a talent advantage. And it's just had these struggles, mostly mental with being able to close out close games and they have some awakening right and they and they are able to kind of wake up and uh figure out how to close these close games and get back to the brand of basketball that they played for most of the season and they're playing against an eight seed that just had their you know second best offensive player and gave vincent sprained his ankle last game so who knows i don't i don't think gabe vincent's gonna miss any time it looked like a pretty mild sprain but hey man stranger things have happened maybe they have uh, i don't even know if that's true but we'll see man so that's my thoughts. I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. Uh, you know, really hoping that the Celtics find a way to pull this out. Uh, you know, not can't say I'm overly confident about it, but that's that's kind of all my thoughts in this series. Uh, but yeah, man, I think that th that just about covers it. As I mentioned before, um, maybe if the Celtics force a game seven, I think that that would be played on Monday night. So maybe I could do a little emergency pod before game seven. Uh, I'll definitely get you a pod at the conclusion of the series before the start of the finals on June 1st. Uh, you know, Basically within the next week, I'll at least get out one more podcast to preview the finals. I can't guarantee I'll be coming at you before the end of the Celtics season. But uh, you know, Godspeed. Let's pray. Let's let's hope. Uh, let's hope that the Celtics find a way to to pull this off. Um, and that that just about does it for me, man. Uh, before I let you guys go, I have to remind you guys to uh, share the show. Follow at Words with Wallace on everything on 
uh, Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to share the show. Rate and review. Tell a friend. It's a, it's a pretty solid pod. If you have an office job and you're looking to kill time, let me put on Nick. Let's get his thoughts on – let's get his, his thoughts talking ball. Get his thoughts on the seas, right? Let's, let's share the show. Let's get this thing big, and I will talk to you guys next week. Peace.